This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land. The government's plan to curb spiralling power bills is now law. Despite claims from the gas industry, the price cap intervention will actually increase costs. The legislation passed a special sitting of Parliament yesterday, just the latest in a series of parliamentary wins for the Albanese government. Next year, the chronic labour and skills shortage will be in focus as the government waits for recommendations from a review into the migration system. And as John Daly reports, unions and business groups are now making their submissions to that review public. In the past year, skilled worker shortages in Australia have become worse. Yet Pakistan national Altaf Mohammed has been waiting two and a half years for his visa to be approved. As an engineer, he's seeking what's called a subclass 476 visa. And he's certain the delays are putting others off. But several applicants, they just lose their hopes and apply to Germany or some somewhere else. And they went there. But there are a lot of applicants who are waiting and who are still hoping that the system, the process will be better soon. And we have hopes, but few months have been passed and still our hopes are still hopes. At the September Jobs Summit, the federal government promised to spend $36 million, clearing a huge backlog of visa applications. And a government spokesperson says almost 60,000 temporary skilled applications have been finalised since June, with the Department of Home Affairs prioritising visas in the health and education sectors. A review of the entire migration system is also underway. And Innes Willocks, Chief Executive of the Australian Industry Group, says it's a system in desperate need of reform. But if we keep a system that is, you know, is constipated, quite frankly, it'll be very difficult for employers to get the people in that they need. So action is needed very quickly. In its submission to the review, the AI group highlights the high government charges for business. In some visa categories, it's tens of thousands of dollars. It's also worried about a union proposal to lift the minimum wage for a temporary skilled migrant from $54,000 to as high as $90,000. Union movement is calling for $90,000. That would knock out big sectors of the economy, would knock out hospitality, for instance. People have to be employed at market rates when they come to the country, and that shouldn't change. But if you make it too high, you're going to particularly impact big employing parts of the economy and in also, in particular, regional areas. In its submission, the Australian Council of Trade Unions is calling for temporary skilled migrants to be sponsored industry-wide rather than by individual employers. President Michelle O'Neill says the existing sponsorship model leads to exploitation. If a boss controls your paycheck as well as your passport, it's a recipe for exploitation. Unions also want to strengthen labour market testing where employers have to prove a skills shortage can't be filled by domestic workers. Well, we think the Jobs and Skills Australia should have a very important role to play here in uh, verifying whether there is genuine shortages of skills and then to look at what's the appropriate response. In many cases, we need to up the training and skill development for people who are here in Australia. Innes Willocks says that'll worsen migration bottlenecks for employers. And to put them through some rigorous you know, hoops to get uh, to establish that they've done everything humanly possible and now they can't find someone is, is going too far. There's already a system in place and uh, we don't need to strengthen it. An interim report from the Migration Review is expected by the end of February. John Daly reporting there. 
Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have piled fresh criticism on the royal family in the final instalment of their Netflix docuseries. The Duke of Sussex has accused his family and their staff of lying and leaking to the British press to protect their own reputations. While the Duchess claims palace officials stopped her from seeking mental health treatment when she was having suicidal thoughts. Europe correspondent Isabella Higgins has more. On the streets outside Buckingham Palace, there's no sign of the turmoil a young prince has just unleashed. In the second instalment of their documentary, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle launched attacks on senior royals and their staff. It was terrifying to have my brother um, scream and shout at me and my father say things that just simply weren't true and, and my grandmother, you know, quietly sit there and, and sort of take it all in. The Duke of Sussex recounted an explosive crisis meeting at Sandringham Estate after he told his family he wanted to step down. He says his wife was left out of the meeting with the Queen, his father and his brother and afterwards Prince William's media team made a false statement about him. They're happy to lie to protect my brother and yet for three years they were never willing to tell the truth to protect us. The Duke makes a series of blistering attacks against the royal press officers, who he says routinely leak and plant stories for favourable coverage. He claims they were often negative pieces about him and his wife, the Duchess of Sussex, who he says faced a barrage of sexist, racist and false commentary. Meghan Markle says during her time in the UK, she struggled with suicidal thoughts. I wanted to go somewhere to get help but I wasn't allowed to. They were concerned about how that would look for the institution. The Sussexes also revealed they'd been working with the palace since 2018 on plans to relocate to either New Zealand or South Africa before they left for North America. The pair made it clear the relationship between the couple and the family is still strained. Like I tried so hard and that's a piece that's so triggering because you go and it still wasn't good enough and you still don't fit in. Buckingham Palace and Kensington Palace have not yet commented on any of the material raised in the documentary. Royal commentator Claudia Joseph says the allegations will have an impact. It is damaging to the brand, the firm and the institution. But I think that people have very strong opinions about Meghan and Harry already and probably won't change according to what they say now. It may not be the end of Prince Harry's tell-alls, with his memoir due to be released early next year. This is Isabella Higgins in London reporting for AM. And thanks for your company on AM where it's 16 past seven. And stay tuned after 7.30 where you'll hear the year in review, the annual RN Breakfast montage. It's been another huge year and this one is not to be missed. Flooding in rural communities has forced many women and children to move off farms and into nearby towns. It's meant being separated from their husbands and fathers, sometimes for weeks, causing anxiety and stress for all involved. But women are rallying to help each other out, as National Regional Affairs reporter Lucy Barber explains. The floodwater on their farm hadn't even peaked when Nick and Melissa Tyak noticed their daughter wasn't sleeping. Three-year-old Adeline was becoming more anxious by the day. You hear people say that 
kids are like little sponges, but until you actually go through something like this and, and you actually notice that they do pick up on everything. By November, farms around Condobolin in central west New South Wales had been inundated. The Tyaks decided Melissa and Adeline should move into town before the farm was cut off completely. But the five-week separation from their husband and father was tough. She was at her family daycare's house, which was beautiful, but she's never really been one of those children who cry at drop-off time and, you know, that sort of thing. But we'd both leave in tears. She'd go inside and, and I would walk away crying and... Yeah, so it's pretty full on. Countless rural women have had to relocate to keep working their day jobs and so children can attend school. But buy from the bush founder, Grace Brennan, says her kids' bus route to Warren north of Dubbo was cut off for five months because of wet, damaged roads. The ground has been shifting under these kids with COVID and everything for so long. It's the nature of how long it's going on for people feeling like they can't catch a break. Rural Aid Charity Chief Executive John Walters is worried that flood fatigue has set in, particularly in metropolitan areas. It's almost the forgotten flood and the hardship that people are experiencing, it's, it's being lost on people. But rural women have rallied. Melissa Tyak helped form a Facebook group for women and children in Condobolin who'd been forced to leave farms. While moving between available accommodation, they met up for activities such as swims, obstacle courses and dinners at the golf course. She says the highlight was when a local teacher dropped off soft toys called floody buddies for the kids to snuggle when they felt down. Having that connection and support in town just makes such a difference to everybody. Gave everyone a bit of an out as well to come together and not think about the SH1T show at home and <laughs> just, yeah made it that little bit easier. Her daughter Adeline still cuddles her soft toy in bed each night and while the Tyaks have been reunited and their home still stands, they're all too aware that many others are still struggling. My heart goes out to those who are still stuck out of town and who are still dealing with this flood. It's just very overwhelming so I think the strength and resilience that everybody has shown throughout this whole thing is just yeah, people amaze me. That's Condobolin farmer and mother, Melissa Tyak, Lucy Barber, reporting. A fatal helicopter crash in the Northern Territory that killed a cast member of a popular Netflix show has ignited a debate about the controversial practice of collecting crocodile eggs. Traditional owners and a local mayor are calling for more transparency about where companies are collecting the eggs from and how many are being taken, as Jane Barden explains. When Outback Wrangler cast member Chris Willow Wilson died in a helicopter crash in Western Arnhemland in February, he'd been helping collect crocodile eggs for farms growing the hatchlings for the NT's successful croc leather industry. But there's mixed support for the croc egg harvesting among some traditional owners, including Eddie Mason. If outsiders can come in and get the egg, they should consult us more first or take one of the elders to go to this country and see how many eggs you collect from this country. Traditional owners receive payments for allowing private companies to collect crocodile eggs through Indigenous land access deals administered by the Northern Land Council. For some, the system is lucrative and works well. But Eddie Mason says his family members haven't received the money they expected and he feels there isn't enough transparency about how many eggs companies are collecting and from where. When they went collecting out there, 
they haven't come back to us. I'm sure the companies would say they do get the proper permissions before they go out. But I mean, do you just worry really that they haven't consulted everybody that should be consulted? All of the station mob, they never got consulted when they was going to go around and get these crocodile eggs and tell us how much royalty these people was going to get. The West Arnhem Mayor Matthew Ryan says it's hard to keep track because companies appear to be subleasing their agreements to other contractors. And this is where the transparency is not open enough with the traditional owners and not having the data available to pinpoint which area they've been collecting. What would you like the Land Council to do about that? The Land Council need to make sure that the agreement, what they put in place with the traditional owners are met rather than you know undermine the decision-making when you're subleasing to another party. Some Indigenous rangers, including Western Arnhem Land Bawanonga Jilk Ranger Greg Wilson, often work with the private companies. I jump in the helicopter and then they sling me in and then straight up to a nest. They drop me there and I collect egg really quick. You must have been really very careful watching out all the time for the mother crocodile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, carom stick, paddle stick. Oh, just really quiet when just go collect them really quiet. He wants the collections to continue to try to curb croc numbers. Too many crocodiles right now, now. You bought ram. The Northern Land Council has told the ABC it's now monitoring a number of the crocodile egg harvesting agreements, but won't comment further at this time. Jane Barden reporting. If you've been the victim of a crime, you know that it's often not only traumatic, it can also be frustrating to deal with the criminal justice system. Some people find it useful to take part in a restorative justice program where offenders and victims can meet to discuss the impact of the crime and how best to move forward. But in Victoria, there's criticism that there aren't enough of these programs available, as Ashley Barraclough reports. When Tracy Larson and her husband Shannon found out that the man responsible for her 15-year-old daughter's death was going to jail, they felt hollow. After he was sentenced, I remember Shannon and I both walking out just like, it's just nothing. Like, he could have got 20 years or one year and it wouldn't have made any difference to us. Their daughter Georgia died in early 2018 while being driven to school by her 18-year-old boyfriend who didn't have a licence. Joshua Lewis swerved off a gravel road and hit a tree. And although he was sent to a youth detention centre for 18 months, it didn't ease Tracy and Shannon's grief. So it might seem curious that 17 months later, they were driving to prison to visit him. At the time, I was thinking, what are we doing? Why are we doing this to ourselves? We've been through so much. Why do this as well? The Larsons had decided to take part in a restorative justice program which facilitates respectful interaction between people harmed by crime and perpetrators. It was run by Open Circle, the only community-run program for adult offenders in Victoria. You know, as soon as my husband saw him, he just hugged him. It's something I will, like, never forget. They spoke for two and a half hours. It gave us the power to ask the questions we wanted to in our way and for him to understand the impact that it had. Josh is now out of detention and has told the ABC he suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and was ridden with guilt. So hearing Tracy and Shannon say they wanted the best for him was life-changing. Narita Lewis is the manager of Open Circle. For some people, hun, they really want to send that message of, I don't want you to carry this guilt forever. I want you to do something really positive with your life. Um, and that is a way that you can honour the person I've lost. While some states and territories have legislation backing the use of restorative justice for adult offenders, Victoria doesn't. 
Last year, the Victorian Law Reform Commission recommended that be changed to help expand the availability of such programs. Having that legislative basis is key to making it more available and to making it something that's a regular feature of the criminal justice system. In a statement, Victoria's Attorney-General Jacqueline Symes says the government has provided record levels of investment to better support victims of crime and the Department of Justice has announced its own program is expanding. For Tracy, it's important that more people can access restorative justice. And while the grief lingers, she says she no longer feels hatred. It was just like a, a weight was lifted off our shoulders and he had some really great plans to move forward and be a, a normal person in society and that's all we wanted. That's all we wanted. That's Victorian mum Tracy Larson ending that report from Ashley Barraclough. India has one of the worst gender pay gaps in the world, but its women's cricket team is changing that after successfully fighting for equal pay for matches. The new scheme has come into action during India's T20 series against Australia's women's team, which is still facing a gap in pay with the men. South Asia correspondent Avani Dias reports from Mumbai. The sun is setting at these cricket nets where a group of young women are training in the sport at the GS Harry Academy, one of the first centres for aspiring female cricketers in India. They're of all ages and players like Menka Jar have big dreams of playing for the national team one day. In India, you can find a bat and ball in each house. Before, not many girls were playing cricket and coming out of their homes, but now they are. India! India! Women's cricket is entering a new era in India. The national team is now receiving equal pay per match to its male counterpart. And the new scheme has come into action during India's current T20 women's tour with Australia in Mumbai. India's captain, Harman Preet Kaur, says the sport has come a long way for women since they had to buy their own food on tours while the male players were flying business class. Well, when we started, definitely no one was, you know, coming to the stadium and watching us, how much hard work we were doing on the field. But nowadays, you know, people are recognising definitely whenever we go out. I tell you what, this is absolute guts. India is the second country after New Zealand to introduce equal match fees. Australia's women cricketers are among the best paid female athletes in the country, but Cricket Australia has acknowledged there's still a big gap. Cricketer Megan Schutt says she hopes things will be equal in the future. I mean, I got my fingers crossed. I don't think it'll be in my lifetime. You know, I'm towards the back end of my career now, and when I first started, it was semi-professional and we were barely getting paid. So I'm happy where I am now, but hopefully it keeps progressing in the future. India! At the India-Australia matches, crowds pour in, selling out the stadium with more than 47,000 fans. The matches are being properly promoted in India. Across Mumbai, there are major billboards advertising the games, while the players are on the front page of the major newspaper. Megan Schutt says more resources would mean the sport can also grow for women in Australia. I think it's just continued advertisement, to be honest. The biggest thing is changing perception, um, gaining respect, mainly from a male audience, if I'm honest. As long as we keep winning and performing on, on a world stage as well, that, that gains crowds. What a game of cricket we have had the privilege of witnessing this evening. This is Avni Dias in Mumbai reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. 
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Imagine for a second what it would be like not to have a home this Christmas or not to have enough food to feed your family. That's the reality for a growing number of Australians faced with a massive increase in costs. Today, Reverend Bill Cruz, who's worked with the homeless for 50 years, on the changing face of poverty. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.